Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Elizabeth Keto, and I'm a PhD student in History of Art at Yale University. Today, I'm delighted to join Warren Carew and Siobhan Angus for a conversation about art, pedagogy, and environmental justice. Warren is a photographer, filmmaker, writer, and interdisciplinary scholar whose work often explores links between environment, culture, and storytelling, with a particular focus on Indigenous communities in Western Canada. He directs the Center for Creative Writing and Oral Culture at the University of Manitoba, where he teaches in the Department of English, Theater, Film, and Media. Siobhan Angus is a Banting Postdoctoral Fellow in the Department of History of Art at Yale University and a visiting scholar at the Yale Center for British Art. Her research, informed by a commitment to social and environmental justice, explores the visual culture of resource extraction in Canada, with a focus on photography and visual archives. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that Indigenous peoples and nations, including Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pagosset, Niantic, and the Quinnipiac and other Algonquin-speaking peoples have stewarded through generations the land and waterways of what is now the state of Connecticut, from which I am broadcasting today. Warren and Siobhan, welcome to CAA Conversations, and thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I guess to start, I'd like to ask, could each of you speak a little bit about where you are in the world and in your practice today? I'm happy to start if that's all right. Uh, um, I'm uh, in Winnipeg right now, which is where uh, I made my home after, um, after growing up in uh, Saskatchewan um, and uh, spending time in, uh, in Toronto and Vancouver before that, um, uh, before I came here. Um, I'm, I just started uh, teaching my, my first year course and uh, um, haven't had as much time to do photography over the summer as I thought I would. Uh, or I had time, but I didn't actually have opportunity. So I'm feeling like I still would be able to do a little bit more over the, in the fall here before, uh, before winter comes. And um, yeah, I'm just really excited to have this discussion and uh, thanks so much for, for the invitation. Yeah, thank you, Elizabeth, for putting this together. So I come to academia from an activist background, and I think at the heart of my research program is a political commitment to questions of environmental, economic, and social justice, and an intellectual commitment to really bringing these questions together. So as you mentioned, I write about the visual culture of resource extraction, um, you know, which is a primary driver of global climate change responsible for half of the world's carbon emissions and 80% of biodiversity loss. Um, in the Americas, extractivism is also the context of many struggles surrounding indigenous land sovereignty. And I think that these questions are very art historical because extraction is both a material process and a worldview. So as a process, you know, extraction takes raw materials from the earth, and some of these materials become the foundations for art making. Um, but as a worldview, I think, you know, extraction really views nature as a resource to be exploited. So when we celebrate economic growth over other forms of value, and I think this becomes a way of seeing nature, right? Like it directs our gaze to see land in this particular way. Um, so I'm kind of interested in using, I guess, extraction as a framework to consider how these narratives we've inherited about progress are really insufficient for our current moment and haven't really given us the tools that we need to move forward. So I guess I'm interested in how both the archive and contemporary art can be used to locate stories and histories 
that might point to alternatives that help us see and know nature differently. Um, and I guess when I started working on this body of research, you know, there wasn't really a lot of eco-critical art history. Uh, so I'm really happy to see this podcast. Uh, so in my own research, I draw really heavily from environmental history and eco-criticism coming out of literature departments, you know, which are just much more established bodies of work. Um, but it's always been curious to me that art history was so slow to have its environmental turn because so much art historical scholarship centers on both materials and landscapes, which are obviously very important themes in eco-criticism. I could just respond to that. I think, yeah, that's a really interesting uh, observation that you make, Siobhan, about the, um, the eco-critical turn happening at a different time in art history. And I'm, I'm a literature scholar and a storytelling scholar. And so um, in, in literature, uh, that, that has, has been a, you know, a fairly large um, uh, area of study for quite a long time. Um, but it also had its blind spots, I, and I think in, in some ways still does. Um, I found as a scholar of Indigenous literature, there wasn't a lot of room in uh, eco-criticism as a kind of uh, critical edifice uh, until quite recently. And I'm really seeing some excellent work being done in the last three or four years that is, is changing that. But um, I think it's interesting that I think there's some possibilities for art history to, to maybe um, avoid some of those blind spots or, or to do things a little bit differently um, because the, the discipline is maybe coming to the topic in uh, a different time period. Yeah, I mean, just to pick up on that idea of kind of the potential in art history or the resources art history might have to do things differently. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about kind of what you spoke about, Siobhan, kind of materials and materiality and how those figure in both, Siobhan, your kind of art historical practice and then Warren, your practice of photography and filmmaking. Uh, I guess I can jump in first. Uh, so I think that, you know, all objects have a story. Um, I think that comes from Donna Haraway, if I recall correctly. And I think one method of doing eco-critical art history is to trace these stories. So in my current research, I'm interested in how photography sort of materially connects to and emerges from extraction. So I'm exploring the use of different metals and minerals in photographic processes and these kind of very different image objects that they make possible. You know, this dates back to the first photograph set in bitumen, which Warren can speak more about. Um, but you know, there's also silver, uranium, iron, platinum, mercury. You know, these are all metals and minerals that surface throughout the history of photography. Um, and you know, in our current moment, rare earth minerals, of course. And I came to this question because there's a number of contemporary artists whose work that I really admire, who are using these very material processes to explore the intersection of climate change, colonialism, and extractive capitalism. And, you know, producing images that make these systems visible, while at the same time presenting this very clear critique. And, you know, we're in this era of dematerialization, which of course is still incredibly material, um, but there's also this excess of images. So I was interested in this turn to these very labor-intensive processes that are working really directly with complicated, unstable, occasionally toxic materials. And you know, if we're seeing climate change narrated in like graphs and charts and news photography, you know, what do these very obviously material objects tell us about the materiality of climate crisis itself? 
So I began to ask, you know, what's different about a photograph set in bitumen or a photograph set in silver? How does a photograph, you know, exposed or I guess actually irradiated by uranium differ than one exposed by sunlight? And, you know, this raises questions of basically like what photography even is. But I also think that it points to something much more relational at the heart of photography than these narratives of mechanical reproduction presume. So I'm very interested in questions of process, of becoming, of labor, and I think these are the interests that led me to materials. Um, but I think that more than anything, you know, using materials as an analytical framework is kind of continually teaching me the limits of my own knowing. Um, you know, in the Arcades Project, uh, Benjamin has a chapter on iron, and he engages with this materialist text um, by A.G. Meyer that describes the um, ferments of disquieting instability in iron's material transformations. And I feel like I'm kind of continually running into these um, disquieting instabilities in thinking about materials. You know, they have very different elemental structures, they have very different extractive histories. The bodies of literature around them are also completely different. You know, reading about uranium is very different than kind of reading and writing about silver. Uh, so there's something very slippery about these concepts and it's become really hard to ground, you know, which I think is maybe a really productive lesson for eco-critical art history is sort of um, engaging directly with those limits of knowledge the inconsistencies and where things become really slippery. For me, uh, material in my photographic practice, material is is the practice actually in a way, and um, and I came to it uh, to photography actually through my fascination with the material of bitumen. Um, so I've sort of become an accidental photographer in a way, although I've been you know interested in photography and I guess as a um, as an amateur for a long time. But um, I, you know, my home community um, of Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan, is is right near the um, the Athabasca tar sands region, and uh, I, for a long time that has been my focus in my writing and filmmaking is uh, you know, to try to give uh, give a, a broader audience, um, you know, or find a broader audience for people to understand what is actually going on there with that extractive uh, industry, which is. Uh, enormous um, and involves stripping the surface of the of the land and um, basically processing the earth into oil um, and uh, it's a it's a, a land that's that's um, very rich in biodiversity and it's a land that is home to many indigenous people and that this extractive practice has radically changed people's lives it has radically changed the the lives of of the the non-human residents of the place as well. And when I first started doing this work in the early part, around 2000 or so, um, really hardly anyone seemed to know about it. I mean, now I think everyone is aware of the photographs of the, of the dark, the photography and video have, have actually really spread um, uh, awareness. Um, but for me, what I wanted to do, what I, you know, I, I, made, I, wrote, I wrote stories, I've written poems, I've written articles, you know, um, made um, uh, films about Indigenous people in the tar sands and their experience, uh, the way their lives have been disrupted, um, the way I fear that this is coming to my own home community, which is not very far away, and, it, and my community has been affected already. 
Um, but at, throughout all of that, I, there was a strange sort of distance I felt from the material itself, even though I would go to visit the community and you can actually see lumps of bitumen, you know, right in Fort Mackay, the, uh, the First Nation that's, that's surrounded by the bitumen plants. And so I started thinking about, you know, what, what is this stuff? What, what is it really, um, you know, uh, what, can, what can be done with it? Uh, and, uh, uh, and I thought about what it would be like to, to do something productive with it and maybe something different and in, in a different kind of way than, than what it normally is used. And I remembered way back into an art history class I had taken, uh, the, um, uh, lecturer had told us about Nisiphor Nieps and his, uh, first photograph that was created with bitumen. And so I thought that's interesting. And I started doing a little bit of research uh, and I thought, would this bitumen also be photosensitive? And I was just really very fortunate. I just, I Googled around and I found, uh, you know, some experts on the first photograph and I, I sent a message to uh, Dusan Stulik, professor or, or um, a research scientist at the, at the Getty um, Conservation Institute. And I said, would this work? And basically he emailed me back within minutes saying, can I talk to you on the phone? And because he was so excited that someone would want to create art with this material. And so that's where it all started. And, and Dusan was very, very helpful. And, um, you know, with all of his experimental knowledge to to help me to learn how to interact with this material in such a way as to to create images. So yeah, the whole thing really started with me wondering what is this material and what can be created from it that is different from how it is normally used within um, within our petrocultural um, society that we live in. I think you know your practice is a really great example of I think how photography can be a really relational practice as opposed to something that's, um, you know, kind of quote unquote, like the extractiveness of photography, which a lot of scholars have written about. When I think about your practice, I think a lot about, you know, Zoe Todd's description of thinking about fossil as kin. And I think especially, you know, with your connection to place, is that something that you think about? Absolutely. And, and the idea of the bitumen as not a, you know, not a sort of semi-invisible product that fuels modernity, but as, as an actual material that you can, you can reach out and touch and you can see where it's seeping out of the ground. And uh, so I've been able to go, and, and when I, when I've gathered my bitumen, um, I actually go to the places on the riverbank where the, the companies haven't destroyed it yet, right? Where they're naturally seeping up. Uh, and, and it's beautiful. They're, 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 the seep will have, um, you know, plants growing out of it, and there will be there will be leaves, and there will be insects there, and just to see it in that context is so radically different from when when you see the open strip mines. Um, the smell of it is even different, you know. So so that I think is you know is something that I've just developed over time. Is has started to understand this as a relational process. It just sort of began as curiosity about what is this stuff and what you know what might you be able to do with it, but over time it's become a much more nuanced sense of a kind of relationship that I have with it and trying to see that it has it, it it's it's what it seems it's it's very nature is so dependent on the context in which you encounter it um, and so I think if we I think if the lessons that I'm learning that, that are still in process for me um, you know but are sort of suggesting to me if we can learn to relate to this material differently then maybe the outcomes of how it is is used um, can change as well because I think there's a sense of um, you know, in terms of, 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 uh, of climate effects and, and in terms of everything that, you know, carbon is doing to our, to our atmosphere and to our future, um, there's a sense of inevitability about the material itself doing this. 
But I just, I, I'd like us to think about, you know, can this material do something else? Can we have a different relationship with it? Can we at least acknowledge that we do have a relationship with it, um, even within our, um, you know, our, our petrocapitalist um, world? And, and maybe that is a place to begin to start questioning, you know, um, what has made us think that it is a thing that is separate from us, is not our kin, and can be compartmentalized and, and turned into a unit of basically capital, right? Um, so yeah, I think the relationality of it has something has been again something that I've learned in the process. And I think that question of relationality, I mean, this is a podcast that's primarily about pedagogy. So I also wanted to ask about kind of teaching and how you know you might think about kind of teaching, organizing relationships to a, a community at any scale as part of your practice. In terms of my own photographic practice, I've been I've been interested in the in the possibility of of teaching the the process itself of how to actually you know, create images out of the bitumen. But th the problem that I've encountered so far in that is that it's so toxic, um, uh, or at least there's all the, there's this, there's a threat of toxicity. And so you know I would love to have an, a workshop. I would love to actually have a workshop in you know in Fort Mackay, one of the First Nations that's that's right on the Athabasca River to be able to go with folks from the community and say, hey, look, you can make something different with this material um, or with other folks who are interested in alternative photography methods. But it's just so toxic and that it that is a, is a barrier. Um, and um, but someday I'm hoping that there are ways that we can that we can navigate that um, either, you know, doing it in the in the open air because when I'm processing it, um, it creates, uh, you know, really, really smelly smoke. So have to do it in a way that was that kept everybody safe. When I do the practice myself, I'm taking a bit of a risk. You know, I try to protect myself as much as I can, but it is it does have health effects on me. Like I can I you know I, I can feel the um, the effects of it even though I'm wearing a respirator and uh, you know in gloves and, and that kind of thing. So I just I hesitate to involve other people in that risk if they're not fully aware of what the risk is. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the sort of interesting things about the destabilizing nature of the Anthropocene is that we all have a lot to learn and unlearn. You know, and Warren, you talk about this kind of unlearning your relationship to oil through this photographic practice and putting new ones in place. And I think, you know, the kind of ethical and political questions that are raised in our current moment are really inviting us to move outside of our disciplinary silos in really productive ways. And I think there's so much like exciting scholarship that's coming out. And a lot of it is really pedagogical and really centers on these questions of, you know, both classroom learning and how we might come at questions differently, but also community-based practice. One of the projects that I'm working on right now um, kind of came as like a side project through my dissertation, which looked at, you know, territories that were reshaped by silver mining in the early 20th century. So at this moment where silver production explodes, you know, at the exact same moment as the brownie cameras invented. So there's this kind of drive to extract more. And the territory that I look at, you know, like many extractive sites in the Americas, um, was the home of indigenous peoples. And so one of the kind of parallel projects that I worked on as part of my dissertation research was this sort of long-term mapping project uh, with Nidakinen, which is the environmental stewardship and cultural preservation wing of Temiskaming First Nation. So they've been doing GIS mapping for like 15 years, tracking what they call um, non-timber forest products. 
because you know in the language of like capitalist forage management everything that isn't timber that's going to be productively logged just gets lumped in as like non-timber forest products so you know these are things like traditional medicines traditional foods but they've been charting these traditional food ways and um, so one of the outcomes has been really working towards indigenous food sovereignties um, but I think that one of the cool things about this project is, you know, I think we have this tendency to think about extractive zones as damaged, right? And then we redirect our attention to things like old growth forests or these sort of pristine sites of nature that we can still save. But, you know, like nature is constantly in flux. It's constantly changing. Landscapes are slowly remediated, um, sometimes by plants, sometimes by people. And I think there's a lot of like hope in these old extractive landscapes. Um, so one of the kind of pedagogical tools that we've been building out of this project is a virtual herbarium. So it looks at sort of key species that have been used in foodways or in medicine, and it kind of helps people identify them, but it also identifies the risk that they're facing as species due to climate change. Uh, so that people can, I think, start thinking, you know, in a long-term way, like as these forests are being logged, as extraction continues to happen. And now, you know, corporations are sort of referencing climate change, but I think it helps kind of ground them in these individual species. And we can start to think about those things in public forums, right? So there's this community aspect to it that I think is really productive. That's great. That I, that's a fantastic example, I think. And um, it does remind me, you know, the way I, you know, I have uh, these, these uh, sort of blocks in terms of, of uh, doing a um, an example of uh, of my own practice with uh, in terms of teaching folks to do that um, I've certainly been very involved in other kinds of community-based projects that are that are similar to what you're what you're describing Siobhan um, in in uh, the oil affected regions as well as in northern Manitoba where we have hydro developments that have very much um, disrupted indigenous people's lives um, as well and Right now, I've been I've been part of a project called the Waniskatan Hydro Alliance, um, which is uh, an alliance of uh, hydro affected communities, uh, uh, indigenous communities, and and researchers. And we're you know we're going from you know we have scientists, we have cultural specialists, political scientists, uh, even storytelling specialists like myself, and uh, and you know we're able to you know interact with the communities in and let them set the priorities. And that's been I think really crucial for us. Uh, is to to be sure that the communities have that um, you know that leadership role in the in the projects and uh, and uh, they've been really uh, very responsive and we've learned so much from them so so the pedagogy goes every direction in in projects like this and I really find that for you know when I'm working with with uh, storytellers storytelling in the indigenous contexts that I'm familiar with is all about pedagogy the stories hold a cultural knowledge right they, they hold knowledge of how to survive on the land um, and the storytellers will bring out those aspects in certain contexts um, so so i think you know for my own work you know pedagogy is really sort of centered through that that storytelling aspect and the um the whole the whole ethos of community engaged research and so i think that's exactly the same as, as what you're doing in the project you described yeah, and I think, you know, thinking more about kind of alternative understandings of kind of what historical scholarship or artistic practice might look like right now. I mean, kind of thinking about 
ways of being anti-extraction via anti-extraction or kind of taking another approach than kind of just production. I wonder how you've thought about those questions in your own practice. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, coming to photography as someone who didn't think of myself as an artist, um, I still don't really think of my photographs as products. <laughs> and I don't in a way know what to do with them once I've made them because I'm uncomfortable selling them. Uh, it seems to me that because this, this has been a process of relationality with me in relation to the, pro the, the material itself, um, and because it is, you know, it's, it's sort of conception is around an anti-capitalist um, ideology that, that I've you know, been working, working with. Um, I have these photographs and they're just sort of building up in my basement. And, uh, and, I, and I feel like the only thing that I can do with them basically is gift them. Um, so, uh, so that's, you know, I, I, when I find someone who actually is interested in, what, in having one, I, I would you know, um, gift them. But the process of, of, uh, of, of creating the, the petrograph is what, uh, is what still fascinates me, you know, and, and, uh, and also one of the elements of, of process and of, in a way, performance, I guess, that, that, has, um, that has fascinated me is, is the gathering of the bitumen, as I, as I mentioned, you know, finding it there on the, uh, on the fourth floor, but just going out with a sense of not knowing exactly where it is. And, and it reminds me of the kind of, you know, gathering activities that indigenous peoples are, you know, are so good at and have such, such incredibly long histories of, uh, of doing. Uh, and so I think about other people who have gone, you know, on the riverbanks to gather bitumen over the, over the centuries, because indigenous people use bitumen to seal their boats, their canoes and their vessels as well, um, water vessels. So, so I think about that process as, as I'm doing the, the gathering. And when I, when I find the, the bitumen uh, in its place, I will you know, leave, a, leave, a, leave a gift there um, to acknowledge that, that, that transaction or that, that, that I've been given this, this material. So that I think the performative element of it is, is really important to me. I mean, I've done some video documentation of that. I haven't foregrounded that in the, in the process yet, but I think probably at some point I will, you know, make a, um, a, a longer video that sort of explores that aspect of the work a little more. Yeah, I think that's a really sort of beautiful way of approaching it, you know, kind of foregrounding the gift, both the gift that nature gives us in the form of this material, and then sort of circulating it in a way that exists kind of outside of a sort of capitalist economy, or as something that you know, kind of maybe deliberately like build one's career or reputation in a tangible way. Um, I've been thinking lately about Marx's discussion of um, what economists call sort of production in general, where there's this neat chain that starts with production and ends with consumption. And then production and consumption become the same thing. But Marx reminds us that, you know, production is in this constant dialectic or interplay with distribution, exchange, and consumption. And they have a much more complicated relationship. So I used to think a lot about how to live less extractively, um, but I think that's kind of a fool's errand. You know, that's a really complicated question. So lately I've tried to reframe it as living more relationally and more thoughtfully. So when we think about productivity, I'm trying to kind of emphasize distribution and exchange both in terms of energy and resources. 
I'm probably using these words in slightly different ways than Marx meant it, um, but kind of working from that framework. And so, you know, distribution and exchange are still tied to production, which is, of course, rooted in extraction, as basically everything is. And I think when we think of academic work, you know, there's this narrative of publish or perish. And our research can be really extractive. Um, I think especially when we're considering questions of colonialism, capitalism, environmental damage. And so I think there's a responsibility to be really careful about like how and why we might tell these narratives and sort of what things that we reinforce in doing that. So I think that part of productivity really includes a responsibility to building communities of care, to developing solidarities between sites of struggle and to actively building or just world. You know, as people with affiliation, access to grants, times to research, uh, kind of how do we channel this platform in a really productive way and kind of create space for other voices and other experiences that might not have access to this platform immediately. Like, can we extend um, some resources in that way? And, you know, I think that, like, to go back to what you were saying, Warren, I think that these questions are really important because, you know, a lot of what we do causes harm. But there is this sort of, I think, eco-fascist strand that surfaces in Anthropocene thinking that actually, like, a lot of us slip into, right? You're like, humans are a disease. We ruin everything. Um, there's kind of, like, no way of being ethical and living on this planet. And I think that to overemphasize the damage that humans do by just existing, kind of one veers dangerously close to ecofascism, but it also erases these kind of much more pointed questions about responsibility and kind of what processes, what people, what priorities are really driving this destruction. Um, and I think to overemphasize damage can really be counterproductive, but also ahistorical. Uh, so Responsibility and relationality, I guess, are the key words that I've been thinking about in this particular moment in time. And I think your, your points about um, the ways in which our research institutions and infrastructures maybe are pushing people toward a kind of productivity model, right, and research outcomes, um, that in itself is, is setting the stage for a kind of extractivist criticism, extractivist scholarship. And I think, you know, for me, I, I have tenure, I have that sort of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, privilege uh, to be able to follow things that were sort of what were started out as strange ideas, like, like petrography, right? You know, if I hadn't had tenure, I probably wouldn't have decided to go off on that, on that um, path at that point in my career, because I would have needed to have some product um, in a more uh, timely manner. Uh, and it was a, just a, an odd experiment that uh, that took me in a different direction. But I do think also with community-based work, that's such a crucial question as well. Um, can the community have the power to just, you know, say, we're ending this project, right? Or this is going in a different direction that we don't want. We're withdrawing our, our support. Um, there are some ways in which our research institutions are acknowledging that possibility. But I still think, um, especially junior scholars are put in in positions where you know, they are taking a huge risk because their careers could be delayed if, they, if, some, if a project doesn't come to fruition. Um, so I think there needs to be more flexibility in our institutions for recognizing that, you know, community-based work in particular is 
uh, is reciprocal and, and uh, that the communities actually need to have that, that flexibility and that, that power to, um, to change the agenda or to, in fact, even stop a project. And so to, to be able to say this project ended prematurely and that's a success because this is what, what we wanted um, in our relationship with the community. That was the primary thing was the relationship with the community. That would be the ideal. It's, uh, we're still pretty far from that most of the time. And I want to, to pick up on one thing that you mentioned as well, Siobhan, kind of the idea of, you know, a framework of kind of active hope and a framework of kind of usefulness in a way that allows us to continue acting in the world and, and dealing with these complex questions. And so I was kind of wondering how, how you negotiate that framework in your work or kind of think through that position. I mean, I think that there kind of can be a tendency towards all or nothing thinking in, you know, both academia and in activism, right? It's like, you know, any, especially with a problem like climate change, you know, it's, it's so big and it encompasses so many different things and it requires coordination on so many different levels. Um, and I think, so this tendency to all or nothing thinking, you know, you end up in this position where you're like, well, like art isn't going to fix the challenges of the present. Um, this politician getting elected isn't going to be like the thing that changes it. But I think that, you know, climate crisis is an ecological problem. It's a scientific problem. It's also a question of imagination, narrative making, storytelling. And so, you know, this isn't a problem we can geoengineer our way out of. And I think many of our policy failures in tackling climate change are really about these questions of perception. So in this context, you know, I'm hopeful about the role that art can play in teaching us something about the experiences of people under climate breakdown, the historical development of these things, and these moments of kind of resilience, of resistance, and of healing that are happening all around us that sometimes um, you know, and in, in, again, in overemphasizing the kind of horrors of our present and our past, you know, of which there are many, I think that we can kind of reinforce damage narratives, which kind of like strips away a level of agency to fix those things. I know this is something that, you know, Eve Tuck talks about in particular. Uh, so I think there is a responsibility as kind of academics and community activists to kind of draw attention to these things that might be potential paths forward, even if they're fragmentary or incomplete, or we don't have all of the answers. Um, but again, those like limits of knowing can be okay sometimes. I think indigenous people's experience is very valuable also in thinking about that, that broad, that big question of, um, of, of maintaining active hope in the face of devastation. Um, Wabgishig Rice in his novel, Moon of the Crusted Snow, one of the characters there talks about uh, apocalypse and says, you know, we, we've lived through the apocalypse more than once. We know we can survive that. Um, and so I think uh, environmental apocalyptic thinking in a, in a more Judeo-Christian sense of that, I guess, or a more sort of mainstream sense of that, there is this sense of, well, we can't do anything. So, so let's, just, let's just give up. But uh, Indigenous peoples have experienced you know, massive disruptions of their lives um, in for centuries, and they've they've found ways to to continue to find hope and to to maintain to keep 
the the teachings, even despite uh, uh, you know incredible odds. Um, so I think there's there's a lot to be learned from from that from their examples. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the specific things that they do are specific to their own cultures and not necessarily applicable within the broader a broader culture. But but I do think their example of uh, you know of surviving the apocalypse is something that that you know we can take take heart from in a way, um, and that can maybe move us away from that uh, uh, sort of uh, a despair that that leads people to not take any action. Um, for myself, my own my own work, I found that I, I keep shifting medium or shifting genre. You know, I started out writing writing a story, and then I ended up working on some poetry, and then I made a film, and and I think that restlessness is also for me part of the process. I'll get to a stage where in in a particular medium that I'm working, I don't know where I can go with it in, in terms of dealing with this this massive issue, and so I'll just try to find another way and, and switch um, switch mediums or switch. Uh, genre and and that seems to be something that sparks my own uh, creativity in a different way. It isn't going to give me the full answer, but it just sort of tries to give me another another uh, route into thinking about the questions. So so restlessness, I think, is something that's important for me as well. Well, I will say I think we've covered kind of all of the questions I had, but I wanted to hold some space at the end if you any questions for each other or important aspects of what you're doing that my questions just didn't didn't bring out i mean i guess with warren i'm kind of curious this restless shifting between genres um you know as a photography scholar i'm kind of always interested in the possibilities but also the very real limits of photography so is there anything that you think that photography does or even just the visual more broadly um, that you haven't been able to do or has kind of opened up new avenues as opposed to kind of your other methods of storytelling or academic research or filmmaking? I think the foregrounding of the material is the thing that for me, um, the bitumen photographs allow that, that uh, writing doesn't do that. You know, writing has a, a sort of, you can get into people's minds, but you can't sort of present them with the material. Video and film don't, don't really present them with the material in the same way either. Um, storytelling, though, is in, is even more embodied in a way uh, and relational. So it's it's such, it's the most embodied and relational practice I think that there can be. So so I think it, on that sort of continuum. That's that's where I would place uh, you know my photography practice is not not as as embodied and relational as storytelling, but but much more so than than writing is. Um, filmmaking and especially documentary filmmaking, which is what I've mostly done has that relational element right where you're you're there with the person and 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 your as an interviewer your interactions with that person while they're telling their story interactions just by your your facial expression or that kind of thing is also a part of the story so i think it is definitely there as well but um but yeah this was you know something for me as a as a writer I, there's a there's a sense of remove that you have from your project which maybe you know allows you a different kind of perspective on it but but when it's right there and you smell it, and it's sticking to your hands. Um, you get a very different kind of exp experience with it. And I think for the for the viewer, I'm hoping that there's an element of that that, that comes across to the viewer as well. Either either prevented, you know, provided you know contextually, so like people can understand how these were made, or maybe even just in the way that the the material is is sort of physically present on the on the metal plate for them to look at. Great. I mean, if that's kind of where the conversation wraps up, I think that's a nice 
a nice place to end just with that kind of reminder gesture from within zoom to the kind of tactile and the material um so thank you so much for for this wonderful conversation for joining and thank you also for kind of inviting me into your homes and offices which i know is kind of a an, an, a new thing and it's something i don't want to take for granted so thank you Thanks very much for the invitation. It's been great to have this conversation. Thank you, Elizabeth. This was such yes. a generous invitation. And thank you, Warren, for joining me today. Much no, appreciated. Yes, yeah, it's, it's great. And we know we've had some chats before, but it's great to, to have this venue to talk in mm. for sure. So.